Greetings everyone here for our second show of 2018. Man, I cannot believe it. January 15th. I just had my 41st birthday. Cannot believe how old I am at least number-wise. I definitely don't feel 41. I feel great. Maybe the best I've ever felt physically. Uh, I am excited for another year of Patriots to the Core. By the way, I am Thad Forster and thank you very much for joining me. You have a lot of things vying for your time. I know that. So thanks for choosing to listen to Patriot to the Core and uh, I'll try to keep my voice to a minimum so you can listen to someone a lot more interesting than me. But I do want to give you some uh, heads up on some guests that are scheduled uh, very soon on PTC. That would be, uh, first of all, Tim Larkin. And we're going to talk about when violence is the answer. And that's actually the title of his latest book. Good stuff from Tim. He's going to talk about how Violence is rarely the answer, but when it is, it is the only answer. We're also going to talk to Mike Durant. Uh, He is from Black Hawk Down, so that's going to be some good stuff. And uh, Matt Larson, known as the father of modern combatives. And uh, Israel Del Toro, who was an Air Force TAC-P, and uh, back in 2005, his vehicle was hit by a bomb, and he he suffered some serious, serious injuries, and his body is just uh, burned. Most of his body was burned severely. Very inspiring guy, though, about his. We're going to talk about his upbringing and, um, you know, how he was very, had so much responsibility at a young age and just how he chose to to serve and how he's back on active duty now, despite the the serious injuries that he received in 05. Those those people are confirmed. Uh, That'll happen, be happening here very, very soon. There's some other ones scheduled as well, but man, I'm excited for them. And uh, now also excited for Darren Sapp, who's the guest today. Darren is a a Navy veteran. He's an author. Uh, He's working on several projects. Uh, One of those is uh, he's actually helping a a former guest, Ron White, who was the brain athlete. He's working with Ron on a a book to highlight uh, some of the fallen from Afghanistan. Uh, You know, Ron has the memory wall where he has memorized the names of every fallen hero uh, in the war on terror from Afghanistan. And in this book, they're going to highlight some of those heroes. And uh, Darren is helping him put that together and doing some interviewing with the families. And so uh, Mark, my brother, will actually be one of those included in this book. So look forward to having to uh, reading that and learning about some of these other guys. And I think Darren's going to be interviewing me or some other family members to get some info on Mark. But now we'll uh, actually talk to Darren about his time in the uh, Navy, about his time on the aircraft carrier on the Roosevelt, and some of the other things that he's been doing and that he's volunteering in. You were like in the inaugural crew of the Theodore Roosevelt, USS Teddy Roosevelt. How did that happen? And, uh, you know, I was uh, going to go in the Navy for advanced electronics, you know, get get the the, the big dream of getting all this tech, uh, technological education and everything, but I didn't quite have the grades, so to speak, on my uh, ASVAB score. And I said, I want to work with aircraft. And they, th- they said, great, go to boot camp. We'll make you an undesignated airman. At the end of boot camp, they said, you're going to go to this new aircraft carrier, the Theodore Roosevelt in Norfolk, Virginia. And I said, okay, you know, I'm 18. I didn't know any better. And they sent me out there, and I ended up getting the adventure. You know, it's not just a job and it's adventure, but I truly got that adventure. And lo and behold, they even put me on the flight deck. So um, uh, the the ship was in the shipyards at the time, 
So they sent us out like on a short cruise on the Kennedy, the first time I was ever on the flight deck. And then um, as the ship was uh, um, um, inaugurated and uh, commissioned, I became what's known as a plank owner. Yeah, so what is a plank owner? I'm not familiar with that. So a plank owner is kind of an old term. The uh, Back when they had wooden ships, they would pull up a piece of the plank and cut it up and divide it, and everyone would take a piece of that plank home. And they'd say, you're a plank owner because you're part of the first crew. So in our case, they actually tore a piece off the ship and melted it down. And, like, I have a plaque on my wall that's got a little piece of the metal from the ship on it. And so I'm known as a plank owner because I'm part of the inaugural crew. Would that be the entire crew would be plank owners? Right. So on an aircraft carrier, you know, there's typically about 6,000 in the um on a ship when we're at sea, but about 1,500 of those are squadron folks. So these would be the 4,500 or so who, and actually because it was so early, it was a little bit less, about 4,000 of us who were in that very first crew in October 1986 that were the plank owners for the Theodore Roosevelt. Okay. So you there? there's various uh, colored shirts that the, the, the that you wear. Can you, will you explain those? Because you ended up being a yellow shirt. I don't know if that's the... You know the highest ranking colored shirt or what? I'd love to understand what those what that's about. Yeah, in a sense, I'll kind of whip through them. You know, there there's the, the the idea behind the colored shirts is so is to make it easier for pilots and those working up in the island structure to to clearly identify who's doing what. And you know, some are just one shirt, colored shirt, one job. You know, purple shirts or grapes as we call them. Those guys are refueling aircraft. Uh, brown shirts or turd shirts, as we call them, is always a nickname. <laughs> Those guys are what's known as plane captains, and they're each assigned to one aircraft, and they are the, the babysitter. They're like the pit crew for that aircraft. But then you, you have colors that are mixed. You know, uh, um, you see guys with red shirts on. Those could be ordnance guys or guys in a completely different division that are a crash and salvage crew. And those are basically the aircraft firemen. Green shirts can do a, a variety of different jobs from handling the arresting gear and the catapults, or they're part of the squadron maintenance people. But the yellow shirts typically get identified quite a bit. And, you know, I ended up being a yellow shirt, and people said, oh, you're the guys that shoot the planes off the aircraft. Actually, those are officers, and they're in a little bit different department. But yellow on the fly deck means leader. So... Like anyone else, I started as a blue shirt, which is just putting in chalks and chains around the aircraft, and that's kind of the gut work. I got promoted to red shirt crash crew, so I was a firefighter on the aircraft. Then after about a year, they made me a yellow shirt, and I was an aircraft director. So we're the ones that are moving the planes, telling them where to go, uh, spotting them on the catapult, and you know putting them in full tension and sending them off. So the, the pilots basically trust the yellow shirts to move them around safely. What is life like on the flight deck, and especially as a yellow shirt? Well, it's um, there, there. You know, it's there's no official place to find the sourcing, but supposedly Lloyd's of London, the high risk insurance company, has said working on the flight deck is one of the most dangerous jobs on earth. Now, obviously, combat is a lot more dangerous, but it is highly dangerous in anywhere on the flight deck, almost any job, because you have propellers that are turning that can take your head off. You've got air, aircraft exhaust that's blowing. It can blow you off the flight deck. You've got 
planes that that are landing at you know 200 250 miles an hour that could veer off and crash into other planes or that a resting gear cable could snap and just cut through a lot of guys and i, I won't go into gory details but all those things have happened Mm-hmm. well you had said that you lost some shipmates i mean can you talk about that and how did you yeah so the um the first one that really was a wake-up call for us, we are working on the flight deck a normal day. I was on the flight deck. I directed a, um, an aircraft. You know, in the news recently, there was a Navy plane that went down. It was that same type of plane. We call it a COD for carry-on-board delivery and has two big propellers. And th- that I directed that plane to another yellow shirt. He parked it, and then we kind of heard this thud. And I saw a guy next to me. He was looking in that direction. He just dropped to his knees. I turned around, and then I just saw a body with no head or shoulder. And what it is, this guy, he'd done it probably a thousand times before, wasn't paying attention. He turned around and walked right in the propeller. Oh. And, yeah. And, you know, the thing is, we're, it's, it's such a tight working environment up there. So you, we, we say you have to keep your head on a swivel. And that's very true. I mean, because there's just constant danger. You're just surrounded by it. But that, but you know, we don't we don't operate in fear. We we just we, we recognize it and make sure with, that we're paying attention and we're trusting the other guy to have our back. There's a lot of checks and balances. The uh, another incident of somebody we lost was this guy. He it was um, not during normal flight deck operations. It was a maintenance period, but there was a plane that was turning, so there was exhaust blowing out. And he wasn't paying attention, and he kind of just walked behind it, not realizing it, and it blew him right off the flight deck. He hit the water, and we never saw him again. Oh, God. About yeah. high, how high up is that deck to the, to it's, the water? Yeah, when you, you know, it sits a little higher in port, but when there's a lot of planes on the flight deck and the weight, it's about 75 feet. And we, um, th- there is this netting that extends about four feet out. And it's a wire mesh netting, and we call it halfway to hell because if you fall in it, you're going to get really hurt, but at least you don't go in the water because the last thing you want to do is go in the water because, you know, you fall that high uh, unprepared, you're probably going to break some bones. You may sink. Or, you know, there's always the fear of getting turned under the ship and going through the screws, you know, that kind of thing. But a lot of guys that have been blown off and fallen off are typically found because, you know, we wear a lot of protective equipment. So we, you know, we wear the cranial helmets, which protects our head. But that life vest that we wear has um, several options. It's got the little CO2 cartridges. You can pull a lanyard and blow the vest up really fast. You've got a dye marker uh, to to put some dye um, that'll follow several feet behind you, and a strobe light that you can whip out and attach to your helmet. So if you're if you hit the water and you are floating, you're aware. There's a lot of things you can do to improve your situation. I mean, how do you avoid, if you're alive down there, how do you avoid getting sucked underneath the ship? Well, I think you try and swim out as fast as possible. I mean, you know, theoretically, if if you hit the water and you're you're able to somehow uh, create a little bit of um, uh, movement for yourself, you can move away from the water. It's not like it's sucking you in. It's just if you go down and, and just get caught up in some kind of swirl. So, you know, the screws actually are not protruding out. They're actually under the ship, you know, from the back end. So if you fall off the back end, you probably miss them. And that's that's actually a common place to get blown down. And, you know, probably the 
the scariest blowdown I ever had was um, I'm behind where that arresting gear is, those four cables, and an F-18, it blows straight at your back. You, You know, some planes take your feet out from under you, some knock you over. The F-18 blows right in your back, and it pushes you. And I went all the way back to that fantail, and I'm just staring at those nets. And it, it was, you know, kind of a miracle I didn't go all the way. And it was and it was entirely my fault. You know, I just wasn't paying attention. And that's what, a, you know, a lot of these accidents that happen is just, you know, you're up there, and you kind of get complacent. And complacency is a killer on the flight deck. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, in, the inherent danger is there, you know, that – but – we're so well trained. We're so aware. We're uh, so experienced that you think more accidents would happen. It's just that the potential for danger is just always right there. Because there's also, you know, um, one pilot in a malfunctioning aircraft or pilot error veering off can kill tons of people. Or the worst fly deck accident ever was the USS Forrestal fire. That's kind of the famous one is just a, a bad electrical wire on a Zuni rocket was um, used, and this is Vietnam era, and the uh, it, it just set off. And the the rocket shot across the flight deck and hit John McCain's plane. He was actually sitting in his plane waiting to launch, Senator John McCain. And he was able to get out and actually you know help as far as the, the crew, but it just set off one fire after another, one more explosion after another. And it was a long time, and they had 134 guys died in that. Hmm. So fire, fire at sea is terrifying. It's a killer because there's nowhere to run, you know. And, you know, like in the Marines, they have a saying that every Marine is a rifleman. You know, in the Navy, we say every sailor is a fireman. And so did you ever experience fire? Uh, nothing big. Uh, we had like an engine fire. Here and there, because I was uh, in the crash crew, I did a lot of firefighting training. And so I had tons of mock aircraft set on fire where I go in with the silver proximity suits and we put out the fire. So I had a lot of it, a lot of experience, a lot of training. But as far as that, no, no nothing like that. The, the um, and you know, the probably the most significant injury I hit is I, I experienced is I had a, a tow tractor. Um, back in, they weren't paying attention. They backed into me, knocked me over, ran up on my leg, and, you know, and sprained my ankle. So I was pretty fortunate. I didn't have any major injuries, but you know, plenty of other guys, you know, they 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 either uh, just got knocked down, blown down, or uh, um, just had aircraft turning would just you know hit them in the head or something like that because there, there's just so many things twisting and turning and blowing up there, and. The, the biggest accident I ever experienced, and probably my scariest day, was the um, um, the helos or helicopters right before a launch were getting ready to take off. And I'm standing near what's called the waste catapult. So that's kind of in the middle across the island. And I'm I'm holding an A6 on the catapult. They're they're waiting. I'm, I'm holding them, waiting for them to launch. The helicopter is taking off. It gets about 40 feet in the air, and the tail section starts ripping off, ripping apart, just from the airframe. And it just turns 90 degrees and starts going into the deck, and the rotor blades are just digging in the deck and splintering. And I turned around and shut the aircraft off. I told him to kill it, the pilot to kill his engines because all that would have ruined his engines. And I hit the deck and just, you know, prayed, I guess. And it, it all missed me. And luckily, no one was seriously hurt that day. The guys in the helo were banged up pretty bad. 
but you can imagine the uh, helicopter just splintering, the, the rotor blade splintering on the flight deck. It's like bullets. Yeah. So did, did the helicopter start spinning at all, or was it able to, to stay keep his uh, I don't know stay straight and come back down? Oh no no no. That's what I'm saying. He got about 40 feet in the air, and be because of the the tail section ripping apart, it caused it to rotate 90 degrees, and he came back down sideways basically so he would you know if it was uh if there were no rotor blades he would just land it flat on its side but the rotor blades were hitting and it kind of just was twisting the helicopter in all kinds of crazy directions and it ended up just kind of laying on its side with no rotor blades Hmm. okay yeah it, it just i mean it was just kind of chaos on the deck you know and um one thing about the flight deck as opposed to like a, a commercial airport is those jet engines are very fickle. They can have any anything go in in them. Not even a, this tiniest um, um, thread, we would say, but nothing metal, nothing you know, no, no part of the flight deck asphalt, nothing like that. So that first story I told about the guy who walked in the propeller, we had to clean all that up. I mean, we had to pick up every single piece of that. And I, I mean, it's it's something that never escapes me. You know, walking down the flight deck that day, you know, picking that up. And, uh, we, we, you know, we obviously for a bunch of guys who were new to the ship, we were all pretty young that day. We were all 19 years old. We learned a lot that day, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you wrote a book called fire on the flight deck. Will you kind of explain what that's about and, and, you know, where you got your experiences from? Is it all, is it basically, I know it's, I think it's fiction, Yeah. but I guess it's based off your life experience. Yeah. So what? What's the the nature of that book developed from? People asking the same kind of questions you're asking me now. What was life like on the flight deck? What was it like to live on an aircraft carrier? Were you ever scared? Was it dangerous? And I always thought I'd write maybe a memoir, but I, I didn't have that you know that big event I think would interest people. And I'm I like to write fiction, and I thought why don't I, why don't I accomplish the same thing? But give a, a compelling narrative and some interesting characters. The first half of the book, I do a, a lot of the stories I've just told are in there and they're, they're very similar. I spend nine chapters on boot camp because everyone has boot camp questions too. Uh, Cause you know, it's always an experience, but then the last half is um, basically what happens when you have a giant fire on the flight deck. And I, had, had already known a lot about flight deck fires, but I studied several others because there's been five major flight deck fires. And I kind of compiled different elements of those. And so what you have is a book that a lot of Navy flight deck veterans hand to people and say, this is what it was like. And I've heard a lot of those stories or just people kind of wanting to relive those days and think, OK, you know, this is I want to relive relive my Navy experiences. And that that's kind of the feedback I've gotten from that one. Are there when there's a fire? I guess you're left you're all alone, right? I mean, you can't. Are there any helicopters maybe on the aircraft that that are able to extinguish fire from the air? They could take off. Or is that kind of a crazy idea? Yeah, no. There, there's really nothing. What what you have is four or five different options, but just kind of quickly. There, there now a days there's a sprinkler system that'll just pop up, and it's not necessarily going to. Uh, immediately extinguish it, but you have a really good chances of that flight deck, uh, a sprinkler system that shoots up from the deck, um, taking care of it. There are, there are, uh, fire hoses all along the catwalks, all around the flight deck. And we train relentlessly 
on a quickly assembling crews to pull those hoses out and fly, fight those fires. We have, you know, CO2 extinguishers for electrical fires and what's known as PKP, Purple K powder, that can kind of quickly extinguish a, a fuel fire. So um, if, if if there happens to be a ship very close, you know, um, for, for smaller uh, ships, they can extinguish those flyers, fires, but those ships cannot get close to an aircraft carrier because, you know, it just – it's very, very dangerous for two ships to get next to each other because the the chance for them to, you know, uh, have a collision. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just us and those fire hoses and that sprinkler system. That's all we have. <laughs> That's very interesting stuff. This is this is all new to me. Uh, what about uh, – so maybe we need to shift topics here, Darren, and go okay. to um, – if we have time, we can go back to the – the flight deck but what about uh, special operations are well you took an interest in world war ii special operations and you chose to write your master's thesis on the father of special forces aaron bank will you tell us about him and what you learned because i i was not familiar with him yeah absolutely yeah i um when i was uh i i was looking for a topic for my thesis you know you, in, when you do a thesis or a dissertation you're trying to do something really original something no one's ever done before well i, I ran across this guy's memoir and i thought okay but w- it, it, this this doesn't sound this can't all be true surely not and at the same time the oss office of strategic services which is the precursor to the cia um had just released all their personnel files and I talked to my thesis advisor, and what I wanted to write was more use his biography to tell how the U.S. Army Special Forces that we colloquially call the Green Berets, how did they get their start? What's their origin? So I ended up um, get, uh, um, hiring someone to go in the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, dig up all his personnel files and all his Army records, and no one had ever read them before, not since they were sealed back in, I think, 1946. And I just found a treasure trove of this guy and who he was. So Aaron Bank was um, about a – he was born in 1902. So, you know, when the war breaks out, he's at the age of most men stay home. Well, no, he serves, and he serves – he goes in enlisted. And uh, he is – You're talking uh, he, about – now you're talking about World War Two, right? World War Two, correct, okay. yes. wow. So he Sorry. was – man, he was – he was older than just than most then. Yeah, and what makes him so amazing is that he his background he was what's known as a medical gymnast, what we call a physical therapist today, and he was he was a gym rat. He was obsessed with it, and even at forty two, he was physically fit, much more physically fit than most of the twenty years around him. Well, he was chosen. He was made an officer and chosen to be part of this new program called the Jedberg program. Now, Jedbergs, what they were supposed to do or, or what they were designed to do is um, pair up an, an American with a French officer or a British officer and a French officer and then a radio operator. And those three would parachute in and work with the French resistance as for, sort of a false force multiplier. And the um, and he, he was obviously perfect for this because he spoke French. He spoke German because his grandparents had taught him these languages when he was growing up. And during his Jedberg training, he would do things like, he would stand on his, uh, do a handstand and go up the stairs on his hands. He, he had another little, uh, uh, thing he liked to do where he'd pull himself out of a swimming pool into a handstand, you know? So 
he's doing these amazing things then it just just showing off his physical fitness but he was also really really sharp and he excelled at being a jedberg now the um the the jedbergs all wanted to go in prior to d-day but the training the uh the logistics just didn't work out and you know at this time uh the regular army they were not too fond of the idea of special operations or you know they would call it unconventional warfare hmm. but the i mean and that and to be honest with you i mean that existed all the way through norman schwarzkopf he wasn't a big fan of him either either but um these Jedbergs ended up, although they, they went in, most of them, after D-Day, they still were tremendously uh, successful. And Aaron Bank and his team, they ended up uh, uh, on a mission to either stop the Germans as they were trying to retreat or just kind of uh, disrupt their their uh, any kind of counterattack they were trying to do. He was uh, instrumental in helping several of them getting taken prisoner, uh, surrendering that kind of thing, so they they learned a lot through this Jedberg program, and as you can tell by the the way it's described, it's it was very much a precursor for what we call the Green Berets today. Mm-hmm. So they didn't actually use that name when he was in. Now they the um, so when we say special operations or lowercase special forces, you know we're talking about unconventional warfare guys who are highly trained. Uh, guerrilla warfare, that type of thing. The uh, U.S. Army Special Forces uppercase is what's known as the Green Berets. Mm-hmm. So, but, but as World War II uh, um, uh, wound down, there was a lot of people that were like, you know what, we we need to make this a regular element of special warfare or, 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 or special operations. We need to have this as a regular force. And there, there's a lot of background, a lot of fighting that went into it, but essentially about 1942, the U.S. Army Special Forces, or Green Berets, were born. And um, Aaron Bank, because he had been there, – there was a lot of key players like Russell Voltman who were instrumental in this. But because he was their first commander, he earned the name Father of the Green Berets. Okay. And did you meet him? Oh, no. He actually died in 2000. And uh, four at the ripe old age of 102, but I I was uh, had some fascinating interviews. I interviewed his wife, and who was she was working as an interpreter with uh, captured Nazis, you know, towards the end of the war. And she had stories. His daughter told me tons of stories about him. And I've got to interview uh, General uh, John Singlop, who's still with us today. He was also a Jedberg. And he told me a lot of stories about Bank that only that, that confirm what seemed like es- escapades in his memoir. And uh, uh, another guy named Yu Tovar who was with him in Indochina for another mission where they met Ho Chi Minh. You know, <laughs> just just an incredible different um, um, elements to his story. And but he's not a guy that he he never seemed like a guy who. Had, was a braggadocio or or pride. If anything, he was really secretive. You know, his wife and daughter have no idea what he was doing in the late twenties and thirties. There's this period of his life that, um, and, and they wouldn't care if I said this, that I think he was probably already doing some kind of covert operations. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't prove that. I'm just guessing that this big gap and his his the expertise he already had seem awful suspect. Mm-hmm. So. Fascinating guy. 
Yeah, say, and, and I want to make sure I get this correct. Jedberg. How, how, how do you spell that? It's J E D B U R G H. So it's singular. And Jedberg is it, it's it's an old uh, 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 name from British from some uh, from an, of a group uh, from I think even the Middle Ages. I'm not exactly sure, but they they would say the Jedbergs, but it was the Jedberg singular Jedberg program, and you know, the OSS um, sort of mimicked the British version, which was called SOE, Special Operations Executive. And, like, everyone knows that James Bond is MI6. Well, that just stands for Military Intelligence Division 6. And, you know, in, in World War II, the SOE would have, you know, M1, M2, M9. You know, one of their MIs was uh, for POW rescue. And... The, the Americans OSS version had just names for it. They might have, they had like a, uh, a division that were frogmen that kind of developed into the Navy SEALs. They had a counterintelligence unit, you know. Um, but, but these guys, um, and, and this is, I have a novel I've written called Special Force, which kind of plays on this. I've, I've developed a character named Nick Jordan. He was kind of like a James Bond, but in World War II fighting Nazis. Uh, I, 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 I can't even more to Jack Bauer or uh, Jason Bourne, but I, a lot of what I've done is take what they really did. They really did have lock pickers and safe crackers that they brought in to train these guys. They wanted them to know how to do everything, how to make disguises, how to go do, um, how to shoot everything you possibly could pick up. You did know, they so ever that, use criminals as well? Well, yeah, there, there's a guy named um, Patrick O'Donnell who wrote a really ba- great book called uh, Operative Spies and Saboteurs, kind of a takeoff on OSS, and he really goes into detail about a lot of that. But, yeah, they, they had guys that were uh, probably in prison that, you know, just your garden variety uh, safe cracker who they might have let out for the cause of the war to go train some of these guys. And that probably wasn't a regular practice, but it certainly – did happen. They they wanted to bring in guys who had this expertise to train them. Because you know, if you think about it, like um, we've all watched like um, you know buds training the Navy SEALs. You know, well all those all these special operations have to have their start somewhere. Well, the British, you know, they would say we've been doing this for a few years. You know, we've been you know you know in America we're very conditioned to think of World War II starting on Pearl Harbor, December seventh, nineteen forty one, but World War II. For Europe started September one, nineteen thirty nine. You know, so the British have been fighting for over two years at that point. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, Darren, what about um, you're working on a book now? Or I don't know, maybe multiple books, but you're you're working with one of our former guests, Ron White. He was uh, episode 30, 33 back in July. Uh, he's the one that had the incredible memory. And you're helping him with a book about, uh, I guess it's, it's specific people that are on the Afghanistan Memorial Wall. Or will you uh, tell what your role is in that? Yeah, you bet. So I, I've known Ron since, uh, the late eighties. We were in a karate cast, uh, karate class together. I was in high school and he was a 10 year old. We reconnected about 20 years ago. I became fascinated with his memory course and I've taken it myself and I've even had two of my kids take it. And so Ron is not a savant. He just has taken it to a ridiculous level in his memory expertise. Any of us could learn it. And, you know, he's a Navy veteran, and he served in intelligence in Afghanistan, and he wanted a way to honor the troops 
And what he eventually settled on was he wanted to memorize all the fallen from Afghanistan, from from um, that conflict, and write them on a wall, kind of like the Vietnam Memorial Wall. So it's something that's written and erased and rewritten. It takes him about 11 hours, and so it's 20 near 2,300 names or over 2,300 names. So that's over 7,000 words with rank, first, and last name. And without going into details about exactly how he does, it's not that it's a secret. It just takes a long time to explain is that if you said, okay, which one's 742, he'd kind of roll his eyes and say that fast he would say the name. Or if you say, who's 1422, he would need two seconds and he would give you the name. And it's just that he's 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 so well-trained in this technique that he can write these out. So the project that he asked me to help him with is um, he wanted to write something like uh, Tom Brokaw's The Greatest Generation. So we've, we're going to pick about 30 names or so, and he's asked me to write a short little like six, seven page story on them that he'll he's actually going to do a podcast. Well, he'll, he'll read the story, but eventually we'd like to put it into a book. And I've done about nine of these stories now. And um, just to kind of give you kind of an idea of some of the, the things we're uh, uh, working on, we we wrote a story on uh, Mike Spann, and you know I know you interviewed uh, Mike's dad, Johnny mm-hmm. Spann, right? And, and so I mean that's such a fascinating story, and his uh, his wife Shannon was able to help me out with that, and wrote a, a story. I just finished one on Laura White, who was a, um, uh, a combat support team uh, uh, in a combat support team unit, and what she. Uh, if you can imagine that in Afghanistan, you know, they um, the, these teams go in, whether it's Rangers or Green Berets, and they go into these Afghanistan houses in the middle of the night, the women won't let them search them. So women go in with them. And they only they searching, they're, they're gathering information, that kind of thing. So these women are trained similar to Ranger training, a little bit shorter version of it. So her story is interesting. But... Um, I, I guess I can say there's there's two things that I've learned that I, I you know I thought okay I've studied a lot of military stuff you know I I know quite a bit about what's going on but I realized how little I know once I start really digging into these stories and that I didn't realize that 90 percent of those that are killed in Afghanistan are killed by IEDs you know that was amazing to me mm-hmm. but I also didn't uh, uh, truly understand about what's known as green on blue crime. Uh, uh, green on blue attacks, where what is assumed to be friendly Afghanistan forces attack, you know, Americans or, or uh, British forces. And so I've I've uh, already written I've had three of the profiles have been on that alone. Can you tell me the names? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the stories, uh, I, I wrote a story on Curtis Oaks and Austin Staggs. I did because their, their life stories are separate, but they were actually in the same incident where they, um, were training, um, they, they were, uh, um, Fisters, F-I-S-T, you know, uh, forward support guys. They were training some Afghan border patrol guys how to, uh, you know, uh, side out howitzer attacks and that kind of thing. And they were taking a break in the Afghanistan. The, the Afghans wanted to take a tea break. And, you know, the American soldiers are trained to, you know, uh, 
uh, win hearts and minds and, you know, enjoy their culture and participate in their culture, and they sat down with them. Well, the Americans were kind of sitting off to the side a little bit, and there were six of them. One of the Afghan border policemen picks up his AK-47 and shoots all six of them, kills them. And immediately a couple other Americans step up over the hill, and they, they kill him. So we never really got motive, and um, there there's some differences of opinion about what his motive was. Um, some suggested that he just was uh, suicidal, kind of like a death by cop or suicide by cop, as they you know as some people call it. But there's others that say no, he he's been planning this for two years. He's a Taliban plant, you know. Yeah. So. Um, I, and I leave that question open in the profile because I'm not going to make something up. I'm just going to kind of leave it there. But the, those kind of attacks are real. I just finished, I'm working on a story for a guy named Sky Moat, who was at MARSOC, which is Marine Special Operations Command, who, uh, just, uh, uh, he won the Navy Cross, which is, you know, second only congressional out of honor. When one, another one of these green on blue attacks, this guy came into a combat, uh, operations center and just started shooting everybody. And he basically could have escaped, but he put himself in between the shooter and the rest of his guys and just tried to stop him just to protect them. And he ended up getting, you know, he ended up perishing. But, um, you know, we, we all grew up, you know, watching the, uh, you know, movies or seeing some of these heroic acts. These heroic acts are happening every day. They're happening today. They're going to happen tomorrow. You know, it's just amazing these guys. You know that 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 um, that continue to put their life on our, on the line for our freedom, and there's nothing more important we can do than than to remember them. And you know, when I talk to these gold star parents, that is the common theme through all of it. I just want my son or daughter to be remembered. I want people to remember his or her sacrifice. And they almost every one of them, you know, say that say it that exact way. Yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. I'd wondered because um, you know I, I know a, a few a few of my brother's teammates had have been killed that way as well. Um, one of them was probably ten days before my brother was killed, and um, yeah, when I when I found out, I didn't know why he had, I didn't know the circumstances at the time. I just found out his teammate it was Danny Sanchez uh, had been killed. It really it really bothered me because I really started worrying about my brother. Kind of it kind of hit mm-hmm. home when I found that out. Um, so Darren, what about your volunteer work, uh, with orphans and you, you've done some work with, uh, traffic children in Ghana. Uh, can you, I guess, kind of briefly explain that? Cause that the trafficking thing is very interesting to me. And, and I, I just have not known much about that until kind of recently. Yeah. So I, um, we, I, we have five children, two are adopted, one from China, one from Ethiopia. So, um, we got really involved in orphan causes, uh, adoption causes, done a lot of adoption seminars. And it, it, uh, just through travels to Russia and then to Ghana, um, people started talking about how susceptible orphans are to human trafficking. And it, it just kind of like a light clicked on. It's because in a lot of these countries, they, they go missing and no one's going to go looking for them. So orphans become so susceptible to trafficking. And, I ended up just digging into the whole, you know, human trafficking nightmare. I read every book I could find. I watched the movies, the documentaries, and I got really depressed, and I kind of had just put it all aside. But I decided that 
I'm kind of a networker by trade, you know, I like doing that kind of thing. And what I di- um, discovered in Ghana as far as trafficking was there's about eight to 10,000 boys who are either tricked, snatched, or sold into fishing slavery. And these kids work 16 to 18 hours a days. They're fed little. And all they do is, you know, pull in nets out on this giant uh, lake called Lake Volta. And um, I uh, wanted to, you know, think, okay, decide, okay, what could I really, really do? And I decided to come up with a networking ministry or start a networking ministry over there. What we do is we connect government and social workers to these people out in the villages who have contact with these orphans. And the goal is to make adoption a normal and regular practice. But in addition, we work with certain groups who negotiate rescues. So rescues aren't necessarily, you know, middle of the night, uh, romantic adventure type rescues. It's negotiating through chiefs and the masters about what they're doing is illegal. They're going to get caught. And here's the paperwork on this child. And we, we want you to release them. And a lot of times that works. So um, the uh, th- this carried into a book I wrote called The Fisher Boy because I'd read Uncle Tom's Cabin. And Uncle Tom's Cabin, the reason it was so instrumental in America, and this is pre-Civil War, it was the first time people in the North understood the horrors of slavery in the South. And so, you know, fiction, fiction can be compelling that way in speaking the truth. So I wrote a novel about a boy who is uh, sold into slavery He's later rescued and adopted, and he ends up getting involved in the World Cup and getting involved in politics. And it's it's actually uh, traditionally published in Ghana right now and sold in the school system. Man, yeah, God bless you for what you're doing there. That uh, I'm going to have Tim Ballard on the on the podcast probably pretty soon. He's with Operation Underground Railroad, mm. where, where he's fighting hard to, you know, greatly reduce the the, the child trafficking, and he's He's going all over the world right now and actively training people and and taking part in those missions and rescuing kids. Well, you know, I'll tell you that um, Ron White, the memory guy, because it, it was on a public Facebook post, so he certainly won't care of us sharing this. He was in Bangkok, Thailand, and he saw this little girl with this man, and he knew something wasn't right, and he confronted them. And he did it safely so that no one would get hurt, including that little girl. But it was obvious what was going on. But even here in America... Everyone thinks that, okay, that happens over there. That's in Moldova or that's in Vietnam. Well, I I can tell you that within 50 miles of me, within 50 miles of you, there's trafficking happening right now. We just know it because so many of these things are discovered. Even, Even things that are more subtle, like a lot of us have had this kid come up and knock on our door trying to sell. They say they're in a, a contest for college to sell magazine subscriptions. And you look at them, you realize they're a little disheveled. Something doesn't seem right. And I'm not saying in every case, but a lot of times there's a handler that's watching the two of you. And that kid is either a runaway, but he's forced into doing that, you know, and he's kind of held captive. Mm-hmm. And so so trafficking is something that's around us that it, it, it doesn't take much for us to get educated. And for us to put in our phones a phone number, 888-3737-888. That's the human trafficking hotline for America. If you ever see anything and you're and you think it could be that, you call that number and they'll kind of walk you through what to do. 888 3737 888. 
Yeah, I say it like that because it's easier to remember that way. Right, right, yeah, so that's still 10 digits, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll put that in here. I mean, I'm sure if we if we paid more attention just to our neighbors and, you know, there could be people being held captive, you know, in their homes. But, uh, I mean, Darren, are, are a lot of these people, is are most of them runaways? Well, no, I wouldn't know. In the not, U.S.? No, not necessarily. Um so it, it certainly is that it's that it's that 14 year old teenage girl who's e- either a runaway and it's her fault or just because her parent situation, she's trying to get away from something and a daddy figure comes in, you know, and basically through coercion entraps her in that, you know, and, and um, but a lot more common in trafficking problems are things like um You've got a, a 20-year-old girl in Moldova who is uh, answers a, an ad for a modeling contest, and they said, you're going to L.A., but we have to fly you through Mexico to get there. And the next thing she knows, she's in the back of a, a 18-wheeler coming across I-10 through Houston. That's why I-10 is sometimes called the corridor of death, you know, and she ends up in New Jersey, and she's forced to work in a brothel. And they show her, and they have people in Moldova that are saying, see here, we just took a picture of your mom yesterday. If you try to run away, we'll kill her. And that's it. That's the, that's what they use for the prison bars. That, that story I just told is very, very common. And there's, you, you may have heard of a term called coyotes. These are guys who are selling women from Mexico and they're, they're saying you're going to go work as a maid or work in a restaurant, you know, in San Antonio. But, they bring them across. They're, you know, they're not here legally. They have no credentials and they force them to work as prostitutes or some other form of trafficking somewhere. There's a, um, um, ser- several books out there. Um, um, the, the name's escaping me of the book right now I'm thinking of, but it's, uh, um, oh, Kara, uh, sex trafficking. And that's what the book's called. And he talks about the economy. He's a Harvard economist and how human trafficking has now become the second largest illegal empire in the world behind drugs. It's overtaken uh, arms trafficking. You know, it's just so bizarre. Yeah, it's because humans can be resold over and over and over is one of the reasons. Well, I saw Ron's post about that and read some of the comments. I mean, did anything come of it? Well, uh, I'll just say this, that he did find there was a lot of people that were commenting on it. But, you know, through some Facebook messaging, he was able to get the appropriate authority there because, you know, smartly, he didn't just go to the local police because, you know, that's not always the best thing in another country. But there was an organization that was contacted and he had he had captured enough information to turn over to them that hopefully they can look into the situation because it's possible he was wrong, you yeah, know, yeah. but I doubt it. You know, I think, I think he just was very tuned in to what he thought was going on there. And that's the key to it is contacting proper authorities and why I gave you that 888 number, because, you know, I'm, I'm in a, you know, suburban community near Dallas and you would think the police would be so in tune with this and it's not their fault, but they haven't studied it like I have, or they're not, they don't have the proper training, you know, to recognize it. And, um, it's, it's, it's getting much, much better. But even four or five years ago, a lot of police would say, okay, that girl's been arrested for prostitution. 
Well, a thirteen-year-old girl is not a prostitute. You know what I mean? <laughs> she is. Yeah. She doesn't. You know, she doesn't do that on her own. And they're and these girls are treated as criminals when they they're really victims in the situation. And the the part about human trafficking that makes it so difficult is the aftercare. Because if if I said it right now, we're going to hire a bunch of ex Navy SEALs, we're going to go bust some doors down, and we're going to rescue a bunch of kids. You and I could collect tons of cash. People would donate money for that. But when we say, okay, this 15-year-old girl has been rescued, and for the next three years, we need to put her through school and pay, pay for her to live somewhere and help her with her education. And you try and raise money for that, it's a lot harder. Yeah. And I'm not trying to make an indictment on society, but it just it is what it is. But the, uh, the, the key to it is to kind of win the hearts and minds of the general population and realize that, um, that there's a lot of young people out there. You know, human trafficking, 80% are women, 50% are children. And those are the, those are the stats that, um, that are, that are hard to swallow, but that's kind of the, the, the way it is, you know, and there, there's no secret that, um, the role pornography plays in fueling, you know, the, the human trafficking business. Oh, certainly. And, yeah. We just have to recognize that. Man, so we have just just skimmed the surface on a few topics, Darren. What what? Uh, just tell us the best way for people to find out information about you, possibly to follow you on social media, so they can learn more about your books. If you've got a series coming out, you know all, the Afghanistan Memorial Wall book. I mean, all, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, the easiest way is just to Google my name, Darren Sapp, or and you'll quickly find my website, DarrenSapp.com, and that's kind of my landing page for everything. And my page is pretty simple. The books I have available now are there. Uh, they're most all of them were in a paperback ebook or audio. I'm a big audio book guy myself, so I have most of those. There's a brand new book I just launched two days ago called Summer of 79. And if people like Stand By Me, the movie, or they like Stranger Things, this one is not military at all, but it's uh, about a bunch of kids hanging out in the summer who happen upon what they think is a haunted house and there's a murder mystery. It's just kind of a, uh, it's scary in parts, but fun scary. And it's very nostalgic. It's very 1979. And I try and put a lot of music in there, dress, you know, there's no internet, that kind of thing. And that book's featured on there right now. So DarrenSap.com uh, or just Google my name. And I'm fortunate I have one of those names. I, I don't have a lot of competition in that area. <laughs> and then all my Facebook pages for all those are linked in there. So if people are interested, like in uh, uh, Fire on the Flight Deck or that, uh, that that type of thing, that the Facebook page for Fire on the Flight Deck is something that anybody can like. And uh, we post a lot of, you know, pictures, videos. We have some discussions on there, that type of thing. And, you know, because those of us working on the Flight Deck, we can look at Flight Deck pictures all day long. You know, we never get tired of it. <laughs> 